3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning. This is 3CR Breakfast. It's a pleasure to have your company. My name is Evan Wallace, and I hate to break it to you, this time I'm not live in the studio. It's a pre-record coming from way back in the past. Well, that is all the way from Thursday night in my little study in Northcote. A big part of today's show is our interview with Judith Brett. I'll tell you a bit more about that interview later and where that's heading, but... First, I just want to introduce some really good music. Last week, I was really, really hopeful that I was going to be able to play this track. It's The Road by Mamakin and Spender. It's a good one. It's a bit of a soul feel to it. It has a really euphoric ending. Good tune, good voices, great combination. Hope you enjoy. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. I tried And the hum Be the hit of the road It's a white line Kind of numb And I'm sick and tired Of sleeping In a bed as cold as stone No one knows If I'll arrive No one kisses me Nothing left to hold So I hold the steering wheel My hands on the mountains Forgotten how to feel I hold my thumb out in the wind Two fingers crossed behind my back The growling shifting down Oh, don't judge. 
This is 3CR Breakfast. That was Mamakin and Spender with Road. What a uplifting tune. Really excited about seeing that duo at the Queenscliff by the Pier Festival this weekend. It's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun seeing all these great Australian acts being in a good place with lots of live music. That feels like a, another world from where we've been living in Melbourne and Australia over the last couple of years. So yeah, at the start of 2022, I said, really, really want this year to be a year where there's a lot more live music and hoping for the best in terms of shows going to plan. Super excited that at least in these early months, those opportunities have been there and you can see the wheels start rolling again for live music in Melbourne and Victoria and Australia to, to once more flourish. So that's all very, very exciting. Ah. <sighs> Well, it's a Monday morning. My name's Evan. Great to have your company. Last week, I had the company of Judith Brett. She is a absolute gem when it comes to someone who has set the tone of analysis of Australian political discourse, debate, history. She's written a book that covers her work over the last 30 to 40 years. It's Doing Politics, Writing on Public Life. It's a great collection of articles and chapters and talks and presentations that Judith has, I suppose, published over, over the years and combines some really great themes that address Australian identity, that look at relationships that exist between different Australian political leaders, also to where she thinks Australia is heading as a nation based on some really, really solid analysis of yeah, past shaping of what uh, what the political community looks like in Australia. But something that I think that's really excellent about Judith's writing is that she seems to be able to bring back the focus to ordinary Australians in a, a sharp way, in a way that shows how folk who might not be all that plugged into the political cycle come to understand, respond to, and, and address to uh, and address politics. So that's the book. We start off the conversation, though, by looking at Judith's views on the state of the world with the terrible, terrible war in Ukraine with Russia's awful invasion shaping, well, shaping our understanding of, of politics in the 2020s. This is Judith Brett and the beginning of our conversation, looking at her book, Doing Politics, Writing on Public Life. Judith, we're recording this interview on Tuesday, the 15th of March. Over the past month, following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, different guests that I've talked with on the show who, like yourself, have followed politics over many decades, have expressed a state of shock and sadness and disbelief about where the world finds itself at the start of the 20s. Is it a similar set of feelings for you? Yes, I think so. It it seems an invasion seems such a primitive um, act. So I think I have that same sense of shock and horror as other people you've talked to have. Yes, very much so. State of, of shock and, and, and horror. And I'm curious to put it into context as well too, um, looking at, yeah, trend of international challenge and, and conflict. So something which I really appreciate about your analysis, Judith, is the emphasis that you place on looking at how ordinary people, the term that I want to explore with you shortly, engage with political debate. 
So on the theme of ordinary people engaging with politics, one thing that I found really challenging just even over the last few days is how quickly focus in Australian media and political conversation has shifted from looking at the humanitarian and political implications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine to petrol prices. So I want to draw on your work as a historian here, thinking about that, uh, the last 30, 40 years of, of political debate uh, in Australia and issues that have dominated our consciousness and focus. When do you think the last time was that ordinary people in Australia engaged in a sustained way about global ramifications of an international conflict? I would think probably um, the Vietnam War, um, because we actually had, you know, because of, of conscripts being sent to Vietnam. I mean, the thing about Australia is it is a long, long way from these conflicts. And I think we have a, a sense of being pretty much, you know, we're down here at the bottom of the world. Um, we were engaged with two world wars, but the people who have who have living memory of those, well, certainly there's nobody left for the First World War, but the Second World War, they're very old now. So my generation, I'm, I'm a baby boomer. We've grown up in an extraordinarily peaceful time. Now there was, with the Vietnam War, there was people of my, you know, men, boys of my generation were being sent off to Vietnam, boys I was at school with went. And so we, they, we were actually involved um, in a way that wasn't sort of abstract. So that's what I would say. I think that the engagements in Iraq and Afghanistan, they're done by the defence forces. They don't, ordinary people aren't really involved or impacted in any way. Mm, I appreciate that analysis there and that sense of, yeah, um, what the what the divisions look like there in terms of the responsibility um, that Australians or Australian government has for, um, yeah, connecting with particular types of conflicts. Just another question, looking at the situation in Ukraine at the moment. Yes. Do you think? Do you think that's the fate of how we'll follow? Um, the conflict over the next month, unless there is a, a really horrible turn of events that um, it will just remain in the abstract for the majority of the Australian community? Yes, I think so. Because it has, I mean, obviously prices, petrol prices are going to go up. Sure. Um, there may be all sorts of other um, impacts on cost of living, uh, for example, on inflation. Um, if uh, global supply chains are going to be disrupted and that sort of thing. But people will be able to go about their day-to-day -day lives in in the way they they have. Um, so I do think, you know, it, it's a long way away. And um, I think we all fear the escalation into uh, a nuclear conflict that's spreading beyond the Ukraine. Um, so I, I you know, I guess my feeling there is we can't afford escalation at all. The world can't afford it because it'll just dra draw in many more people into an absolute the sort of nightmare we're seeing in the Ukraine. And do you think on that there's a, a real difference in the community between, say, for instance, uh, younger generations who were born after the fall of the 
Berlin Wall, uh, and then perhaps baby boomers like yourself who saw you know, the fear and concern of, of nuclear brinkmanship throughout the Cold War? Um, and that's a good question. I mean, do you think that that people born after the fall of the Berlin Wall are sort of gung-ho for us getting involved? I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, I can remember when I was still teaching, asking, you know, some of the young the young men, who, you know, who, when we were, we must have been talking about the, the, um, the conflict over, over the Vietnam War and conscription, you know, would you go and fight for your country? Um, you know, what do you feel about being conscripted? And they they all had no sense at all that they would be happy to be conscripted. You know, they they said, oh no, that would interfere with my plans for my life. You know, that people now say compared with my parents' generation who went to war and their parents who went to the First World War, where there was more of a sense hanging over boys, I think, when they were growing up, that being called to go to war was something that might happen to them. I don't get the sense that people born, you know, young people now have grown up with that sense at all. It's like something that happens on a movie or something or happened in the past. Like when I've just been listening to um, the audio book of The Silence of the Girls, which is by Pat Barker, and it's it's about the Iliad. It's about the Greek um, invasion or basically siege of Troy and, and the fighting there. And, when the invasion of the Ukraine started, it just seemed to be the same. I mean, it was just because the thing about about Pat Parker's book is it doesn't shy away from the the violence and the brutality and the horror of it's about hand to hand combat. But it's it just I just felt that there was something you know we were we were still back in this really primitive uh, way of, of 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 dealing with conflict and. You know, I mean, I just think that the Russian invasion is inexcusable. I agree with you completely there. I think that what we've seen over the past few weeks has been has been barbaric. And to see a country uh, looking to achieve a political, geopolitical objective just by brute force, aggression, blood um, being spilled is... Yeah, it, it, it for, for me um, has left me feeling just absolutely in a state of of, of disbelief and, and shock that that is a reality that can happen within you know the so called West and yeah, just thinking well, about it or, I mean, or, or anywhere, sure. You know, and seeing as as the as the um, Russian forces were building up, you saw people go, you know, a, a peaceful city, uh, pe people going about their everyday lives as we do here. And all of a sudden that being completely smashed. And I can remember like as a child growing up in the 50s, I used to, where the, the, the first world, the second world war and the, the Germans invading countries and was very much sort of part of what I, I used to think about that. And I'd sit in my lounge room at I grew up on Springdale Road, Nana Wadding, and I'd imagine what it would be like. I'd be sitting safely in my lounge room if, if, if an army marched down Springdale Road and was shooting at our house. You know, and it, it's that it's something about there's a sort of disbelief that these people's peaceful life, you know, could be just completely blown apart by by this maniac's barbarism. barbarism you know. 
Yeah, and, and that sort of dynamic for me is something that you know, I was born in 1990 and I've grown up in incredibly peaceful time, relatively speaking, in world history and, and world politics. And thinking about the acts that are playing out in, in Russia at the moment, it really conjures up that sense of this is something that was supposed to happen in the past, uh, a long time ago, uh, perhaps in my grandpa's generation. And then for that to be placed right here and now in, in 2022, it's just this sense of a lot of assumptions that I think sat, uh, yeah, um, behind the way that I've looked at the world and looked at uh, how countries uh, are supposed to interact with one another. Those assumptions have really been shattered. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, it, it, for Australia, you know, we're not under any threat of invasion by anybody at the moment. So that's why I think it'll stay fairly abstract for people. Let's talk about a little bit more on the, the theme of the, the political imagination in Australia. And, and one theme that really comes through across your writing in your book doing politics, writing on public life is the term ordinary Australians. And we've talked a bit about it in the context of Ukraine, but I want to broaden out the conversation a bit. When you talk about ordinary Australians, what does that conjure up for you? What, what, are, you, what are you describing? What group of people are you talking about here? I think I'm talking about, you know, everybody, really, <laughs> uh, because most people, not no, not everybody, there would be some who won't, but most people, if you ask them about themselves, they will say that they're just an ordinary person. The The term came to us out of a project um, that I was involved in where there was, we interviewed a cross section of, I guess, about, there was about, you know, 70, I can't remember, about 70 to 80 people uh, over a period of time. It had been started by some political scientists at Melbourne University in the 80s and uh, they had those interviews and then we, um, a group of us, re-interviewed some of those people and interviewed some new people. So it was, and we interviewed them in a great deal of depth to try to understand how they, how they saw politics, you know, how, what, where, where it sat in their lives. Um, and most people would regard, see themselves as, as ordinary, you know, that is, they're not celebrities, they're not um, famous, then they may have plenty of money, that wasn't so much the issue. Um, they're, and they're not um, a member of some sort of self-conscious minority, like they're not a goth or whatever, you know, youth subculture happens to be around at the time. So, and at the time of writing, the term ordinary Australians was, was, was being bandied around a bit to describe uh, the people who supported Pauline Hanson. And I thought that was um, too narrow a term. It seemed to me that most people, you know, they, it, it was a way of saying, you know, we don't put on airs and graces, we want to try, there was a sort of egalitarianism in the term, it, when you self-described yourself as an ordinary Australian, I think, uh, um, and which I think is a very uh, admirable feature of of many Australian people, a, a sense that they should be able to talk to anybody, um, even though they might know that they're better off or worse off than, than those other people. So that, that I guess that's what I thought. Do you think there's much geographic variation in terms of how we define ordinariness? Um, so for instance, 
does being ordinary mean something different in Melbourne or Sydney compared to say, for instance, in, in Queensland or Western Australia? I'm wondering whether you've thought much about that geographical variation that might exist in terms of how we define ordinary in Australia. Um, that's a good question. Uh, all the people we talked to were from Victoria. Um, I think the furthest we got, there was um, a woman who lived in Wodonga and had a business in Albury. Uh, yeah, yes, because people are, are in a sense talking about themselves from out of the day-to-day -day world in which they live and how they operate in that world, how they, how they handle their face-to-face -face relations. I do think that there are differences in the political cultures of the different states that are not well understood. Um, I think there's probably differences how people live, you know, people who live in, in country towns compared with people who live in suburbs and that sort of thing. Uh, so it it probably would, but I I think it's a it's a self-description that doesn't come out of people's sort of abstract sense of Australia, but comes out of how they manage their day-to-day -day lives and how they feel in the social world that they inhabit. This is Monday 3CR Breakfast, where we're talking with Judith Brett about her book, Doing Politics, Writing on Public Life. We'll come back to Judith after this next tune. Uh, this is one of my favourite American blues artists. He's not super well known here in Australia, but there's no reason why he shouldn't be. His name is Mick Colassa. He's a great storyteller. He really likes experimenting with all sorts of different blues genres and sounds and someone who just likes to have a bit of fun with his music as well too. This song, well, this song is about his hometown of Taylor in Mississippi. I think it's a delightful piece. It's a lot of fun. You get a sense of the atmosphere of the community and the people who are there. It's 3CR Breakfast, and right now it's Mick Colassa with Taylor Made Blues. Sitting in Taylor, Mississippi Waiting for the sun to shine My rambling days are over No more rolling down the line You could ask me to leave But I'd have way too much to lose Cause life is kind of pleasant With these tailor-made blues Just got no truck with the city Can't stand being in a crowd Yeah, you might find good people there But for me, just too damn loud But living here in Taylor You know, we got a slower pace It's a laid-back way of living Oh, it's so easy to embrace Party every weekend, friendly people everywhere. Got catfish on the table, sweet, sweet music in the air.
quiet in the morning It's quiet all day long Just a perfect place for fishing Or for dreaming up a song You might question my decision But this is the life I choose tailor-made blues I've seen more than most folks but I finally saw the light now I know this is the only place only place where I can get it right Here in Taylor, Mississippi, you can say I'm satisfied. So I'll just sit here smiling until the day I die. Right here in Taylor, Mississippi. I think I'll walk down to the grocery. Give me some catfish. <laughs> oh, yeah. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. I'm Evan. Great to have your company. You just heard Taylor Made Blues by Mick Kalassa. Oh, I like that song a lot. A lot of fun. And I interviewed Mick a number of years back and really, really delightful person to, to talk with and to get his perspective on music and the connections that exist in America across different racial lines, community lines, and also musical lines too. All right, so we're about to pick up our conversation again with Judith Brett, who's talking about her newest book, Doing Politics, Writing on Public Life. In this part of the conversation, we're honing in on the themes of class and community. We talk a little bit about how people's sense of home shapes their politics, and then also to, also to where class is at the moment in 2022. So that is, how do we understand class in today's community and Australian political debate and the implications of a, well, I suppose, a, a lack of appetite connected to that when it comes to taxation and implementing significant and meaningful reform agendas. It's 3CR Breakfast where we're talking with Judith Brett with her newest book, Doing Politics, Writing on Public Life, Shaping the Conversation. I always find that it's a supreme effort when uh, even asking a question about, you know, what are the issues that are most important to you? Where would you like to see the country head or uh, those sort of big dreaming or um, big picture questions that it's still this tendency for folk to bring those sort of bigger picture questions right back to the towns and, and communities where they live. Is, it, and is that something that you've experienced at all too with your yes. research and writing? 
Yeah, and I think if you look at the way people understand class pretty well, again, in the same way that people will describe themselves as ordinary, people will describe themselves as middle class. Um, and they, you've got to think people are at the put themselves at the middle of their social world and they look outwards at the people they see around them. And they see some people who are a bit better off and some people who are worse off and they put themselves in the middle. You know, they don't, and it's, it's a really marked feature of research that's done on class in Australia over very many, many years is if you ask people what class they are, they'll say they're middle class or they'll say we're just normal middle class people or we're average middle class people. And it's, they're, they're like synonyms for ordinary, I think. And it's because, you know, most people are not sociologists. They're not thinking about how the society is structured as a whole. Um, they don't have a theory of, of power dynamics or whatever. Um, they have, ideas that are useful for, for them navigating the social world in which they live. And um, so even very well off people will overestimate, or I should say underestimate how well off they are compared with the rest of the society. People who are in the top income, 20% income bracket will describe themselves as middle class. You know, it's it's only the super rich who may, who may not. So I think I think that's the, it's the same and it's people using their own lives as the main and the lives I guess of their families and their friends because we tend to be friends with people who are very much like ourselves. Yeah yeah absolutely I think I there's mean, a, a lot here keep going. I was just going to say I mean I don't know I don't think we would have any friends who vote for the Liberal Party, for example, in our social in our social world. So I find it very hard to, you know, like as a as a political scientist and a historian, I understand who these people are and how they think and 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 the the validity of, of the way they see the world from their perspective. But um, I, I don't. We none of those people are friends, you know. So um, it's an in interesting dynamic and, and I'm wondering as you were um, putting together doing politics and just on that reflection there about not having that um, immediate connection to friends who might um, um, vote differently to yourself. One um, key trend that we've seen internationally over, well, the last 20 to 30 years is the idea of self-selecting communities emerging. So we're seeing um, uh, cities, not only in Australia, but also thinking about the US and UK too, where you have a, a sense of people with like-minded values, like-minded approaches, all um, congregating to uh, the same place. And so that sort of mixture of views and perspectives uh, or that heterogeneity uh, that's attached to how we, yeah, how we are setting up communities is, or how communities are set up has changed significantly. And, and I'm wondering what sort of impact you think that has on the idea of ordinariness as well too. You know, we've gone to this sort of um, um, mode of, of almost self-selection. Well, I don't look, I don't know that it's, it's self-selection. I think there's two things I'd say there. One is that um, people are not as involved in in various community organizations that like when I was growing up our family was in the local church so my parents 
um, I think my mother occasionally voted Liberal, but my father didn't. But they would have, there would have been lots of people at the church who, who you know, who voted differently and politics wouldn't, you know, that there was, a, but that, but they were sort of, they were people that you, that you were, you mixed with socially at the church and at church events, but they weren't necessarily your really close friends. Um, so there's, there's that. And then there's the media, um, the way now people can self-select on the media in a way with, with newspapers and things like that, you were reading a broader range of views. I mean, I, I do feel, I feel that, that there's been, you know, with the shrinking of the age, for example, in a city like, like Melbourne and a state like Victoria, there's, you're getting a much narrower window, much smaller window into the whole range of experiences in the state. Like as a historian, if I look at a, a, a copy of the age from the mid 1970s or even the mid 1980s when it's still a broadsheet paper you're getting lots more just there's a lot more stories in it a lot more information about how people in different parts of your city and your community are, are experiencing the world and so I think that's part of the narrowing so I mean I think it's not unusual for people to form friendships um, with people who've got similar values. And I'm sure, you know, in the past when people lived in, you know, the inner city was a, was working class, that people who lived in, you know, working class Collingwood didn't know people, many people who lived in across the river in Kew and who voted differently. So I don't know that that's so, so um, as new as all that. I'm just saying, I mean, I do think people select their, their close friends. And when I say I don't know any people, I mean, I'm sure in the outer in the, in the outer edges of my um, acquaintances, but also in my family, like in cousins and things like that, uh, who I, do, I mean, I don't talk politics to them, basically, you know. Um, there probably are people who might even vote for the National Party. Yeah, yeah. And so there's that variety. Because I have country family sure. in the um perhaps yeah potentially more so within families than than within within friendship groups Judith you've, you've talked about class um and it's a theme that's very strong in over the journey uh, of of your writing that's uh, documented in doing politics writing on public life and just think about my adult life and how class has featured differently across various Australian elections say over the last 20 years, we're uh, a couple of months away from a federal election. Where and how do you think class features within Australian political debate in 2022? Well, look, class doesn't really get talked about um, anymore. Um, I mean, I, I, I suppose my intellectual formation was in the late 60s and early 70s when class was a really important category of analysis, not like there's subjective class, how people understand themselves, but then there's objective class looking at the structures of inequality in the society and the distribution of resources and the distribution of power. But my sense now is it doesn't really get talked about. It's not how people think about themselves. Um, but people do think about inequality. They might not put it in class. They might not use class in terms of where people sit in the in the sort of economic system in quite the same way. But I, I think, you know, people like the debates around insecure work, for example, are really about 
what well, in the 70s we would have I mean it's an issue of class you know how much autonomy and, and control you have over the way you sell your labor and what reward you get for the selling of that labor and who calls the shots on what reward you've got um, and you know a lot of the people in the gig economy are pretty powerless it seems to me um, but because of the way the coalition in particular has if, if, if anything that looks like it's using the language of class raises its head, they will just come out with the politics of envy. These are people who are just envious of what people who've done better than them have got. And so it's got to be, from, from the point of view of a, of, of a party like the Labor Party, it's got to be handled quite carefully, I think, because they've got to, you know, we can see the way they got slammed at the 2019 election um, with the sort of the politics of envy it, you know it's one of the weapons that the coalition will use against labor if it gets a chance on the other hand i think australians many australians are very aware of issues around inequality and disturbed by um, some of the evidence of inequality that that they see and the way it seems to be raising you know the the, the issue the insecure work issue doesn't seem to me bites that much with the with the electoral mainstream um, because uh, it affects young people and it affects a lot of the you know the students or the people on temporary visas or the the, the very new immigrants. I mean, it's the guys from South Asia driving riding their bikes around for Deliveroo. It's not the the kids of the suburban middle class. Um, but it's in housing affordability. And um, I think people are really disturbed by the uh, by that. I mean, I certainly am very disturbed by that. Um, so, you know, they, they're aware, but it's got, these issues of inequality have, have now got a sort of a generational um, dimension as much as, a, as, that, as, as it's a class. I mean, there's a class dimension in there as well in that the kids, who've got access to capital from their parents, young people can can get are getting houses. And the people who come from families where there isn't much access to capital are not getting into the housing market. So it's generational and but class is very obviously there as well. I think that's really well put and I really appreciate the way that you frame that. I'm, I'm wondering too, in your reflections and, and writing on class too, how the wealth of Australia as a country might have also shaped how class is, is understood because by many international measures, Australia is an incredibly wealthy nation when it comes to average wealth per person, when it comes to disposable income. That's a, uh, a shift that's occurred over uh, generations. And now we're in a position where by a lot of international measures, Australia is very, very comfortably one of the wealthiest nations in the world. How do you think that might have also shifted the where class and debate around class features? Um, I guess, yeah, what do I think about that? I mean, I think Australians have been pretty comfortable for a fairly long time, actually. You know, Australians have been very uh, growing. They may live in bigger houses now, but um, they've been living in, in houses. They've been pretty well housed, for example, um, really since the 60s. 
sure. you know, sure. they've they've had access to reasonably priced food. You know that 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 most Australians, yes, there's Australians who live in, you know, there's a there's a a, a level of poverty that seems entrenched, but um, most for most Australians now their houses might be bigger or they might buy steak more often than they once did but that doesn't really make an enormous difference to the to the bedrock you know comfortable comfort of their lives i don't think and but i um so but it means that people don't look i i don't really know the answer to that i have to i'd have to think about that i mean i i what i can't the thing i've been thinking about in relation to this with the election coming up is yes it's a very wealthy country so and, and we've got these big expensive items that need to be dealt with by the government uh, and so and obviously the government is going to need to get revenue from somewhere so that how how is it going to be possible to um, increase taxation in some way given that that I would say most people have got, you know, certainly my in my generation, um, there's an enormous amount of stored up wealth that we, we you know, where where there could be, uh, you know, where that needs to be taxed. I mean, we've got to do something about aged care is going to need more money, um, the rebuilding of the of the flood devastated areas of northern New South Wales and Queensland. They've just committed to big expansion of of expenditure on defence. That, and these are all things that that the population want. So if they're going to have to be, and we've got this massive deficit from the money that was spent um, during the early stages of the pandemic with JobKeeper and and what have you. And so there has to be some reckoning at some point that you know we can actually we're going to have to pay more taxes, and we're a country that can afford it. But I can't see at the moment how the politics of that's going to work out, how it's possible. I think it's really fraught politics and overcoming the, the taboo of taxation in Australia seems like a, a very, very bold task for, for any, any political party to, uh, to tackle um, because it seems like a, a, such an entrenched standpoint right now within not, the Australian community. Yeah, it's, it's been because the, the coalition have demonized taxation yeah sure in many ways and um and i mean i think that that in a way the loss of the 2019 election is was a bit of a disaster labor losing that was a bit of a disaster for the long-term reform possibilities because clearly what was happening there was that that labor was going in with having put policies on the table that did involve some increased taxation not major things either mind you you know things that would have actually only affected a fairly small proportion of the electorate negative gearing and the franking credits i think which was poorly understood but because that and you know labor did that so it would have a mandate um but because it was so smashed by that um that it's made Labor very cautious, which I understand. I mean, Albanese is being criticised for his for his sort of small target strategy. But my view is that that he that there's no option if we're to get a Labor government, but to take a small target strategy because Morrison has no policies of his own, and he's just looking to 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 be negative to win again in 
2022 in the way he did in 2019 by making Labor the story rather than the government the story. That's Judith Brett, and you're listening to 3C Half Breakfast. I really like Judith's analysis there, looking at how trends and tendencies with respect to community and class are shaping where Australian politics is at right now and the nature of the, well, really lack of ambition that comes from major parties in Australia with respect to putting forward um, bold or progressive um, economic or social agendas. It's 3CR Breakfast. 3CR Breakfast. We love our music, especially on a Monday. The next tune, well, it's a song that I often listen to when I just need to focus or if I want to chill out a little bit too. It's a bit of Hawaiian slack guitar with Jeff Peterson's beautiful, and I mean that in every sense of the word, really incredibly beautiful Kapahulu Hula. This is 3CR Breakfast. Kabahulu Hula from Jeff Peterson's Mastery Album.
else wait is that yeah was kapahulu hula you're listening to 3cr breakfast that was the wonderful jeff peterson hope you're having a good morning and i hope you're enjoying our conversation with judith brett we dive right back into the interview now looking at the impact that different prime ministers have had on shaping what it means to be an ordinary australian big part of this too is looking at the impact and legacy of Howard and Australian politics and we also talk about how that shaping of ordinariness has also influenced well influence attitudes and outlooks too to climate change this is 3CR breakfast where we're talking with Judith Brett in light of her new book doing politics writing on public life sadly i think that's very much the case Let's return now to doing politics, writing on public life. The first section of the book is devoted to how different prime ministers have conducted conversations with the Australian electorate and in some cases tried to almost to to redefine the electorate itself. And what comes through is is something of a continuum that links Menzies, Howard and, and Morrison, who you were just talking about. And been reflecting a bit about this over the week since I read the book and the best very very tokenistic and and glib summary I could muster is that they've somehow managed to anchor political debate in Australia to the ups and downs of of, of life in the suburbs but as doing politics suggests the contribution of the three in in shaping political conversations has been far more impactful complex and and layered. Yes well look I've always I guess where all that that work on the Prime Ministers came from was started with the work I did on Robert Menzies' speech to the Forgotten People, because I was interested in political language and the way some political language very successfully, you know, shapes. Um, I mean, politicians have to be have to talk, if you like, in a sort of shorthand to people. They've got to talk in phrases and ways that so people can recognise themselves and believe that the leader. Is a, understands them and is a person like them, and so although the term "forgotten people" by Menzies didn't get you, he didn't use. He only used it a couple of times. Um, when I looked at how he filled that out in terms of the importance of the home and the importance of family, um, that that seemed to be, you know, he he makes that speech in the middle of the war, in the. 1944 when people are feeling pretty forgotten you know in terms of their ordinary aspirations uh, but if you then look at the sort of policies that that he really works towards in the 50s it is about getting everybody into a home it getting into a into a house and the housing policy was very successful so you know because at the end of the war only about 50 percent of the electorate owned a home and in the cities it was a lot lower um, most many most working class people rented houses, or many many did. And you know, then by the end of the sixties, about seventy percent of, of Australian households own own the home that they're living in. So you know, I was just interested in in that in that. And then with with Howard, Howard, there was the Howard Battlers, but the the real um, skill with language that Howard did was he talked about. Australia in terms of mateship and uh, practicality and well you know he'd had this term practical mateship and it had always been that Labor had been the party of mates and Liberals had been the party of toffs you know from the 
a lot of from the point of view of a lot of ordinary people, liberal people who voted liberal, you know, with silver spoons and you know middle class, like well off, and La and Howard managed to construct a language of of vernacular nationalism using a lot of the the imagery of what gets called the Australian legend, the idea of the sort of egalitarian matey Australian male, you know, and got that for the Liberal Party, and that was very clever. I don't think that um, Morrison's got the rhetorical gifts of either Menzies or Howard. I think, you know, he is a marketing man and his idea of the quiet Australians, um, it hasn't, it hasn't really captured something. It, it, it describes people who are not that interested in politics, but it also tells us, I think, something quite unsettling about Morrison, which is his sense, you just leave it all to me, a bit like Yelke Peterson, you know, I'll, I'll take care of it and you just be quiet. We don't really want you in the public arena with your views and your ideas. It, this is my job and I'll do it. There's because there's something of the of the bully, it seems to me, in um, in Morrison that is captured in that term, the quiet Australians. That's a very, very interesting way of, of, of understanding that too. And I just think on, on Morrison as well too, there's uh, thinking about uh, the use of the term quiet Australians, perhaps um, its impact or that the strength of uh, the quiet Australian construct might be somewhat diminished given how quickly Morrison might move from, from one slogan to another. Well, I think that's true too. But, you know, I, I think um, he, you know, he, like he, he wants to talk just to the, to the ordinary apolitical person. And so the fact that he avoided the protesters in Lismore, that he won't go on the ABC, you know, there's like Howard wasn't like that. Howard had much more guts, it seems to me. I mean, he would, and so did Menzies. Menzies would go and talk to a striking, you know, to, to a whole lot of trade unionists who were striking. You know, he didn't, he saw them as part, they're, part, they're Australians and he's the prime minister and he's their prime minister as well as the prime minister for the, for the, the, the women in the suburbs, you know, whereas Morrison seems to me is very uneasy with the people who don't vote for him. Judith, on Howard, it's been well, it's been almost fifteen years now since right. he lost the two thousand and seven election, and he's someone who has probably been one of the most influential political figures throughout the entirety of your career. And I think about my the span of thirty years on this planet, I'm one of the most influential Australian figures in in, in my life thinking about where we are now in, in 2022 and perhaps mm, your writing on him when he was still in office I'm wondering whether you've rethought at all his legacy in Australian history and politics over those 15 years um look I, I think I would have to um, do some work to rethink that but in terms it's, it's in terms of the policies for example the mess that we're in with aged care now is it comes from the, the Howard policies put in place in the Howard government when aged care was partially was partially privatized um, so um, the uh, the squandering of the um, what we were talking about before in terms of people be, unwillingness to be taxed the middle class welfare that 
Costello and Howard put in place when the budget was doing very well. So they say, well, we the, we the government return the money to the people. The sort of set the the um, hollowing out of the public service, um, seeing not want so that I suppose it's the neoliberalism of of the policies of the Howard government, which I think we need to think about. Um, that he got the benefit. His government's coming in after the Hawke Keating years when the economy was really restructured and then it did very well. Uh, they they got the the benefits of that, but they didn't reinvest the money in in public infrastructure. Um, you know, and I think also the um, federal government funding private schools which has increased is, is another thing that's increased inequality in Australia where you've got these incredibly well-funded private schools and a public sector which in many some of which schools are, are funded adequately but some of which are really struggling and so we've seen Australia's educational results sliding down the international scale and that's really caused by the, the fact that people are in, in the poorer schools that really not the, the kids are not doing well and they need resources whereas you've got the rich schools who are putting in extra swimming pools and concert halls and you know icing on the cake so I think that there's quite a lot but he was not incompetent um, in terms of, of the values that he had um, but it, it it's he the, the giving of, of, of that middle-class welfare then becomes very, you know, it's one of the reasons why the government, you know, future governments are in a bind about, about trying to get some of the wealth back for the, for public purposes through taxation. Yeah, that's a, it's a really, really, really fascinating way of being able to, to look at um, the impact of the different policies that were um, pursued and implemented under Howard. And, Another another key um, policy area that uh, I think we can easily uh, overlook Howard's impact on um, this uh, response is climate change, and so it's uh, um, you know it's thinking back at Howard's time in office, Australia was even more of a pariah, you could say, in terms of where we were with respect to. Um, the debate on, on climate change at an international level with the country just refusing point blank to sign the, the Kyoto Protocol. And yes. um, throughout your writing, it really comes through that sense of disappointment, um, concern, um, and a strong plea for major parties to take climate change more seriously. And so thinking about this fraught and, and messy legacy on climate change it does go back to Howard's time in, in office yes, yes. How, how concerned are you that we're still miles away from uh, the country taking steps needed to, to tackle global warming oh look I don't um I think we've made a lot of progress I mean I think one of the things when when Morrison was elected you know became prime minister um I did think that the fact that he was a marketing man might be a good thing because it meant he didn't have strong views of his own. He wasn't ideologically committed. Because uh, the thing, I mean, about Howard is Howard had strong views. He's a stubborn man. Um, Abbott had strong views. Um, 
I thought that if the mood was changing, Morrison would shift with the mood, and we've seen that he has. You know, it's, it's not just the the domestic, the mood of the of, of domestic politics. It's also the international mood. He's seen the inevitability of us having to to respond to um, the the threats of climate change, but he's not that urgent about it. You know, um, but I think things if really things have shifted a lot if you think back to the fact that it was the climate change deniers that blew up Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership mm. and that Turnbull was unable to do anything. You know, think of all of those various, you know, the neg and, you know, the various um, policies that where he tried to get some form of response to climate change through the coalition uh, party rooms and he couldn't and, he, and, and they got rid of him over it. And whereas Morrison has survived being able to sign up to um, zero uh, zero emissions, net zero emissions by, by 2050, and he survived. So that's a shift. But it's just all too slow. It, and, and also, like, Morrison will say, now the line he's running is, well, you know, it's not really what we do, it's what the developing nations do, i.e. China and India. Um, but it's also th that's not entirely true. It's we're a big exporter, but also it's the it's the way we played a laggard, or the you know the, the way we've played global politics. We could have been out there providing moral leadership in some way, and we haven't been. We've been there actually trying to slow down the the the, the, the global response to climate change. So I mean, it's pretty shameful, um, but it's also really worrying. I think, and the it'll be interesting. Like with the floods, there hasn't been the same rush of the coalition to deny that climate change is involved. There've been some voices, like in in the, in news limiteds media, saying, "Oh, this is you know terrible that people are raising the issue of climate change when there's all this destruction happening." But on the whole, I think there's a more acceptance that climate change is actually, this is what we're seeing, the impacts of climate change in these devastating floods. So, and that contrasts with the much more strident denial of the role of climate change in the, in the bushfires of 2019 and 20. 3CR Breakfast, you're listening to my conversation with Judith Brett. So focusing in on her book, Doing Politics, Writing on Public Life. The next tune, oh, this is a lot of fun. This is Ramon Gus. He is a blues artist who spent a lot of time in North Africa. This is his fun take on Robert Johnson's Come On In My Kitchen, but the energy that he brings to this, the different influences that he brings to this, just makes it a treat and something, well, something to perk you up early on a Monday morning. Hope you're going well out there. This is 3CR Breakfast. Here's Ramon Goose with Come On In My Kitchen. You better come on in my kitchen Cause it's gonna be rain in the outdoors You better come on in my kitchen Cause it's gonna be rain in the outdoors
Pretty good, pretty good indeed. Ramon Goose with Come On In My Kitchen. It's a Monday morning, it's 3CR Breakfast. Evan Wallace is my name and we're speaking with Judith Rett. Continue the conversation now, very much still on the theme of climate change and also too with a final look at Australian identity. It's 3CR Breakfast, I'm Evan, hope you're having a good morning. 
And perhaps also too now it's profitable to be supportive of action on climate change. Just thinking about um, last year in the lead up to Glasgow and the huge about face from the News Limited papers uh, calling for a net zero target to be supported. And we've seen also two major companies, um, business leaders come out and calling for, for greater action too on taking action against climate change that uh, there has been a shift very much within business community within Australia too. That's uh, yeah, that that's left that's um, perhaps uh, right wing um, political circle somewhat isolated uh, from mainstream conservatism in Australia. Well, uh, look, I think that's right, but I think it's about capital. I mean, capital is is innovative as well as being conservative, if you like. Sure. Um, and the fact that that the price of renewable energy has fallen so much faster than anybody anticipated, the price of batteries are coming down. There's there's cap you know capital sees opportunities there, but also the capital that's that's invested in the fossil fuel industry and in the coal mines. I mean they're losing money. They're going broke. You know, and so this is actually the market working. Um, and so the politicians are like laggards, you know, there's certainly somebody like Keith Pitt is a, is a yesterday's man, you know, he's, and he hasn't moved, he can't see where, where capital is now moving and, um, and that there's an inevitability about, about what's going on. So, um, so I think that it's, it's, it's the markets responding to, to the way Think, think. You know, prices have shifted. It's price signalling, uh, and yes, the the our federal government was refusing to um, use a market mechanism, but a market mechanism has, in a sense, come in place. Particularly in, in relationship to um, electricity. You know, there's still lots of other areas where you know there's there's big carbon emissions, and we're going to have to think of ways of dealing with it. Another aspect of your book that I really appreciate is the link that's drawn between compulsory voting, Australian identity and political culture. And broadly, and, and let me know whether you think this is a, a fair representation. I think you've represented Australia as being a country that practices inclusion, values civic participation and has little appetite these days for chutzpah, false bravado, or the general nonsense of, of Australian politics. Is, is that a fair link across some of your writing and, and themes of the sort of nation that, that you've imagined there, Judith? Um, look, I do think that compulsory voting is a great achievement. You know, we're one of the few sort of big Western democracies that has compulsory voting and enforces it. And it does, in terms of what we were talking about earlier about ordinary people, um, you know, it, it is something that's inclusive. We all have to vote, and it it gives a it gives a sort of a, a sense of legitimacy to our electoral outcome. So you might, you know, not get the government. Your team mightn't win, but you know that the election wasn't rigged. You know that that. Um, so I don't know about the the national chutzpah point about it. I think. Sometimes, you know, I'm not very interested in sport, so I don't, but I do see there being a fair bit of sort of national chutzpah in the, the sporting arena. Maybe it's harmless. Um, I've not 
but you know because I'm not really interested in sport I don't really have a feel for the dynamics of what's going on with you know like there was more about Shane Warne in the papers than the invasion of the Ukraine and in the media for yeah, example sure. you know um and more about Shane Warne than the price of petrol too you know I and I don't really I don't really quite get what that's about yeah it's an intriguing one but maybe also too the connection that we have with characters as well too I mean you were talking about how influential Howard was in terms of you know shaping that veneration of, of mateship and that sense of I don't know promoting the the lovable uh, larrikins and icons within Australia and, and and people being feeling okay to be able to embrace that part of the culture and and now that's um that is very much part of daily life in Australia that we it can just adore and celebrate individuals like Shane Warne you know in a way that um, perhaps we wouldn't have had say you know to this level of adulation uh, 20 30 years ago oh, no I don't think that's true I think what? if you go back you know, you know you look at Don Bradman um, Farlap you know Dawn Fraser I think there's a long line of of sporting heroes and a few heroines. Oh, but different, but different characters. I mean, I'm, I'm probably just drawing more attention to Shane Warner as, you know, as a um, how he was represented within the media, at least as being someone very rough around the edges. Uh, and you think about sort of uh, characters and sporting types as a well, big difference. Paul Hogan, you know, um, you know, I mean, it may be though that like. I, it seems to me that the that sport takes up more time in the in the media proportionately than it did i think you're right than it did maybe 20 years ago when say when the age was bigger or the, the herald sun was bigger yes there was always a lot on sport but there was a lot more of other things as well mm. whereas now sport is is just a higher proportion of i think of of what um of what we get through the media but as i said i'm not very interested in it so <laughs> <laughs> that's very fair fair enough i just have um i just have two more questions um the last two years um the world has been ravaged through periods of, of lockdowns uh and huge numbers of death and significant illness in the community and we're still living in a pandemic as well too I'm wondering for you, with your experiences over the last couple of years since COVID-19 first found its way to Australian shores, whether that's um, influenced at all how you've thought about as just uh, Australia's part and place in the world? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, the thing that I think uh, that I most think about in terms of the pandemic is the differential impact on the different impact on generations like i'm retired i own my house i live with my husband i the yes you know the um the the lockdowns were you know inconvenient and a bit boring but um life went on but if it had been in my 20s uh when you're want when you're expanding your social world if I'd been forced to stay living at home and going to university from my bedroom um, rather than being able to you know go to the CAF and mix with people and meet lots of new people um, it would have it has a big different impact so I think the impact on young people and on school-aged children 
and on people who live alone has been really hard. So I think it's had this very different impact and it's it, it's another aspect of inequality, if you like, but it's an inequality in terms of sort of life stages and the sort of things that you're doing at different points in your life um, that I think most about and how um, how young people, uh, you know, with the, the, the speed with which they're going to be able to re-establish some sense of being part of society and getting on with their lives, I, I think we don't really know yet. That all makes a lot of sense. I think it's been really, really disruptive for, for that group in the community. I'm going to finish this conversation by exploring your incredible, thoughtful and amusing final chapter that's in Doing Politics. And it comes from a Mean Gin article published in 1986 that uses the chook uh, and how it features in the Australian psyche as a bit of a symbol to represent Australian life. At the time, you drew some very thoughtful and some pretty funny contrasts with the English hen and American chicken and you wrote referring to the Australian chook that the chook is an image of the tenuous hold Australians have over the land, its stubborn intractability and our ridiculous vulnerability. Finally, Judith, can you talk us through a bit more about what was happening in the world and your world when you wrote this piece? Well, look, I wrote that as a parody. Um, it, I was editing the engine at that stage um, in, in the middle 80s. Can you hear that noise? Do you want me to go and... No, no, it's fine. It's, it's not very distracting. Okay. Um, and I, we were having, I had a, an issue on humour mm -hmm. and I wrote it as a parody. <laughs> so, <laughs> but when I read it, was rereading it for this, I thought, oh, it doesn't read as much like a parody as I thought it was at the time. <laughs> it was a parody because in the 80s there was a lot of theory around, you know, and I'd done anthropology and... I'd studied Levi Strauss, who makes a lot of the difference between nature and culture. And, but I also felt that some of the sort of theoretical writing at the time or that used this theory was, it was just, you know, it wasn't anchored in anything. You could just sort of make it up. <laughs> and that's what I was doing. I was just having a little playful making of it up. And at the time we had chooks yeah. uh, in the backyard and, you know, did go out one time and that fox had bitten all their head, you know, there was mayhem with, <laughs> the fox and so there was a you know so it was it was playful but then I sub subsequently found out that somebody one of my colleagues at La Trobe used it, it as a um as an article for students to read in their first year anthropology in one of their anthropology subjects so I thought oh well maybe it had there was more more in it than okay. uh, than I thought but I just basically made it up <laughs> I think it's great. I think that's that's a really interesting backstory to it because it's actually it's very reflective and there's a lot lot to a lot to actually say for um, the symbol of, of of the chook. But I I, I appreciate knowing I appreciate knowing the story behind it. Australians are fond of chooks. I think you know. Oh, very fun. I'm looking forward this year to getting my first chooks as well. That's one of my goals for, for 2022. <laughs> I, I, I love them. Judith, I've also loved this conversation as well. Thank you so much for your time, uh, for your thoughts and contribution and analysis. It's been a, a pleasure talking this morning. And thank you so much for having me and for such a, a, being such a thoughtful uh, co-conversationalist. And that ends our conversation with Judith Brett. I hope you've been having a good Monday morning and I hope you found the conversation with Judith Brett to be a fascinating one. 
I really enjoyed talking with her. I think that she's an incredible analyst with a excellent sense of Australian history, of Australian politics, and it all comes together in her book, Doing Politics, Writing on Public Life. If you get the opportunity, definitely check it out. I recommend it because there's some wonderful ties of themes, of thoughts, of questions about how Australia has found itself in the current moment that it's at politically, and thinking about some of the debates or lack thereof of debates that we're staring at with an election right around the corner. I think this book really gives us that sense of depth and analysis to, to yeah, how we've landed here. I'll be back in the studio next week on a Monday to be with you, bringing some great interviews, some good music again. Looking forward to that very, very much. But to take us out, it's one of Australia's best composers, best guitarists, it's Mr. Richard Pleasant, famous for doing the soundtracks of the like of Sea Change and also Wentworth and very much an accomplished artist in his own name too. I hope that you enjoyed this tune. It's a familiar one. It's a familiar sound. It's a familiar feel for people who were around in the late 90s and early noughties. It is the Sea Change wedding theme. My name's Evan, great to have your company, and I'll catch you next week at 7am on 3CR. Mm-hmm.